Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Joe Jones. I'm an elder here and part of the preaching team. Let's pray one more time and we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful to you that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word, the Bible. So as we look at the book of 1 Samuel, we pray that you would speak to us. And we pray in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, spring officially began uh, this past week. We live in Chicago, so of course it snowed this morning as I was driving in and yesterday. But I love the spring season. There's something about uh, the joy and hope of new life that's just kind of in the air in the springtime. There's something about that first 60-degree day walking out in the sunshine that I believe reveals our deep longing for something more than what this world can offer to us. Even for eternal life, uh, an eternal springtime of sorts. And when Jesus returns to earth, that longing that we all have is going to be truly fulfilled way beyond our wildest expectations. And so this morning, we're starting at the end, thinking about the second coming of Jesus. But that end, when Jesus returns, is really just a beginning for us because it's the start of our eternal life. For those of us who follow Jesus in this wintertime world, there's a hymn that I love. It's called, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I have the lyrics of a verse from the hymn up on the screen. They go like this. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight. Isn't that what life feels like sometimes? The dark midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. So the winter of our lives is almost at an end. And the one who brings the eternal spring is coming so soon. And on that day, we are going to experience freedom. True freedom. Not American freedom, but true freedom. Freedom from suffering. Freedom from sin. Freedom from Satan and all of his schemes. Freedom from all of the worst enemies that are against us that right now are pressing us down. Don't you long for that day, for the return of Jesus? Well, today in 1 Samuel 9 through 10, we're going to learn about God's plan for a warrior king who takes care of of the enemies of God's people, who protects God's people from their enemies. So you can turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be going all the way through a couple of long chapters in Scripture, 1 Samuel 9 to 10. We're going to be reading through every verse in there. But this message will have two parts. In the first part, we'll read through the entire story. I'll make some comments about the first king that God chooses for his people Israel. His name is Saul. So we'll look at the, uh, the anointing of Saul as king. And then the second part, 
We're going to zero in on just one verse in uh, these chapters to get at the heart of the story and the heart of God, the God behind the story. So before we get into chapter 9, I want you to think back to Pastor Brandon's excellent sermon from last week on chapter 8. And in that chapter, we learned that the people of Israel gave in to their fears and insecurities and they rejected God as their king and they asked for a king that they could see and touch instead. And so chapters 9 and 10 will give us God's response to the people's request for a human king. So let's jump into the story Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. And as we re- we're going to be reading a lot, so track with me as we're reading. Pay close attention to what's there in Scripture. But here's the big, big point I want us to get as we read through. It's this. Saul, Saul has great potential, but he's not the king we ultimately need. So that's the point I want us to get as we read through these chapters. 1 Samuel 9, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, ESV. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Wealthy, handsome, tall. (laughs) Or to say it more particularly as the text gives us, he comes from a remarkably wealthy family. He is unusually handsome. And he is a head taller than all of the other people of Israel. Dale Ralph Davis commenting on these verses says this. People would have voted him Mr. Israel had there been such a contest. He goes on to say, A shame they didn't have basketball at Gibeah High School. With his height, Saul would have been a star center. So as we think about this man, Saul, and if you know your Bible, you're already asking, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Our physical impressiveness And earthly attainment, what the Lord really looks for in his chosen man? It's almost like this is a negative omen. The prophet Samuel, who will soon anoint Saul king, will say later in his life, man, you probably know these words, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And uh, we'll learn later in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah 53 says this about God's ultimate chosen king, Jesus. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty outwardly that we should desire him. Jesus was not outwardly impressive and yet he was God's chosen man because the Lord looks at the heart. But let's try to stay positive about Saul. We should give him a chance. In fact, God himself chooses him and sets him up for success. So let's see how the story unfolds. Look at verse 3. 
Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So this is a long, hard search for donkeys. And we see in verse 20, if you fast forward there, that they searched for these donkeys for three whole days. I don't know if you've ever lost an animal before, but three days of searching, I don't know how much you love your animal, three days of searching is a long time. But these donkeys, they weren't household pets. They were expensive means of a family's welfare. They were, you could think of them like business assets. And so they're searching and looking and looking and looking. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. This is not an accident. The timing is just right. My wife and I, we just happened to bump into each other in a hallway at a dorm, Taylor University, 2002. But no, it's not a coincidence. We look back on that meeting as ordained. And that's the idea that we're getting here. Like the meetup is almost arranged by God himself. And now here's where we get to the heart of the passage. And I want to return and dig into these verses after we go through the whole story. But for now, just notice that there's someone behind the scenes who's been at work the whole time in this story. So look at verses 15 and 16. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So while Saul is searching for lost donkeys, the Lord has been searching for Saul. God is at work. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, 
Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? It's like Samuel saying to Saul, don't worry about a couple of donkeys. Pretty soon, you're going to have access to all of the wealth and possessions of the entire nation of Israel. Look at verse 21. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So I'm inclined to think that Saul's response here is a good and right one. Because he's saying, who am I to take on the responsibility of being king over Israel? And yet, it could also betray a fearful timidity that exposes a lack of faith in God. If you know the rest of the story of Saul, you know that this timidity and unbelief are lurking under the surface in Saul's soul big time. But to give Saul a little foretaste of the riches and honor that are coming his way, um, let's read on in terms of what Samuel does for Saul in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Then Samuel told Saul and his young man and brought, took Saul and his young man, man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. So honor for Saul. Verse 23, and Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave to you of which I said, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what, what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So he's feasting at the place of honor with these guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So Samuel wants to have a one-on-one -on -one with Saul. What comes next are for his ears only. And we remember the words of Saul's servant back in chapter 9, verse 6, where he said, all that Samuel says comes true. And so what Samuel is going to say to Saul next is not merely human speech. In this moment with Saul, Samuel is speaking God's words. And the confirmation that they are God's words is that they all come true. And that's the sign of a true prophet. It'd be like if I said to you, after the service, if I went up to you and I said, you're going to go shopping at Costco after second service, which about 50% of us do. And a man is going to walk up to you in the store as you're shopping, and he's going to come up to you, and he's going to say, the keys that you lost have been found. 
How'd you know I lost my keys? How'd you know they've been found? Then as you're leaving the store, someone is going to come up to you and out of his cart, he's going to give you a couple of loaves of bread. And then you're going to walk out into the parking lot and you're going to see a group of five to ten people preaching the gospel on a street corner. And in your heart, you're going to be compelled to go and join them. And you're going to start proclaiming and preaching with this group. Now, this illustration falls really short in many ways. But here's the point I'm trying to make. If all of that actually happened to you, you'd say, that guy was speaking prophetically. That guy was speaking the words of God. You see, it was not human choice. It was not human chance that Saul is chosen to be king of Israel. God himself chose Saul as king, first king of Israel. So let's see, it's so clear in this next passage that God's behind all of this. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not, who? The Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So there are three signs that Samuel says, Saul, this is exactly what's going to happen in your life, in your imminent future, and we'll see how they do in just a minute. But notice that Samuel's essentially giving the Saul the good news. You can't do it. Like, you're going to be anointed king of Israel, and you can't do it. Oh, that's great news, Samuel. Thanks for the encouragement. But what he's trying to tell Saul is this. In your, if you try to be king, if you try to fulfill this kingly role in your own strength, if you rely on your unusual handsomeness and your remarkable wealth and the fact that you're taller than all the other people of Israel, if you rely on yourself to be king, you are going to fall flat on your face. What you need is one thing, the spirit of God. If you're going to fulfill the calling that God has on your life, you must not depend on your own strength, but depend on the power of God. There's something for us in that message, isn't there? 
the need for dependence on the help of the Lord to do what God has called us to do. And that's exactly what Saul needs. Let's keep reading in verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to the servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, I think we can understand this in two different ways, these verses. On the one hand, it puts Saul in a positive light because, again, he's saying, he, he's not proclaiming, hey, I'm going to be your next king. Look at me. No, there's a, there's a meekness, there's a humility, there's a dependency in Saul. But on the other hand, it could be understood negatively. As we've seen earlier in the story, Saul seems to have a timidity here and a fearfulness that flows from unbelief. He's perhaps not trusting fully in the Lord to have the strength he needs to be the king of Israel. So there's a tension here, and we'll need to wait until next week and the following weeks to see how this all plays out. But let's keep reading as we see this theme emerge even more. And notice that Saul, notice the hiding that Saul does, this timidity that Saul has. Verse 17, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Here it is, verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. So the people, most of them, are so excited about this guy. And that's not good. Because what the people want is an outwardly impressive 
king, and that's the king they got. They're, you see what they're doing? They're boasting in the flesh. They're boasting and delighting in the physical prowess of this guy. And yet, at the same time, he is the Lord's chosen man who will save them from their enemies. And here we reach the climactic tension of this story. On the one hand, we know that God chose Saul to be king of Israel. But on the other hand, Saul is the people's choice in rejection of God. And, and here's, again, we come back full circle to the point that I made at the beginning. Saul has great potential, but he's not the king we ultimately need. And so I want to go to one verse and point us forward to a future king who's coming who is the king we ultimately need. And his name is Jesus. And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, and just try to squeeze all of the goodness and truth out of this verse that we possibly can. 1 Samuel 9, 16. Turn back there with me. I have a summary sentence that's going to summarize this verse, and then we'll just walk through it one phrase at a time. Okay, here's how I'm summarizing 1 Samuel 9, 16. God works for his undeserving people to rescue them from their enemies through his chosen king. So let's take it four phrases. First phrase, God works. And I invite you to think on three words. Just stare at them there. Look down, you look down at your Bible in verse 16. The three words I want you just to think on are I will send. I will send. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. I will send. This means, what this means, what those three words mean, are that when the donkeys wandered off, it wasn't a random coincidence in a random universe. In some mysterious way, God caused these donkeys to wander off. And God caused Saul and his servant to go search for them. And God was at work in Saul's servant's mind to go seek out Samuel. God was behind and orchestrating in these events. And the point is this, God is an active God. He's not distant or removed from the world that he made. No, he's near and he's involved and he's working out his perfect plan. And that's as true today as ever. So when you look around at the world, when you look at your life, it might feel like God is very distant but he isn't. He's active. He's present. He's working in your life. He's working in your life. Uh, we, we don't know, like Samuel did, exactly what God is up to in our lives. But, but this story teaches us that God is up to something in, in this world and in our lives. That parent who is sick, that child who is straying, that marriage that is hard, that friend who has betrayed, that diagnosis from that doctor, that stress at work, and every minute 
detail of your life, God is at work in all of it. It's all part of his plan. He's real and he's at work in your life. But here's the big question. Can we expect that God's working for our good and not for our harm? Can we expect that God is working for us and not against us? And let me just ask you this. Should the Israelites have expected that God would work for their good and not for their harm? I mean, they just rejected God as their king. They just said, we don't want you, God. They've sinned really badly against God. So should they expect that God is going to work in their lives for their good? And the Bible says of all of us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all strayed and rejected God. So should we expect that God will work in our lives for our good? And the answer to that is probably not unless the second phrase in our summary sentence is true and it is where it says God works for his undeserving people. So two more words to stare at in verse 16. My people. And the two words, my people, are repeated three times in 1 Samuel 16. My people, my people, my people. These are amazing words if you think about it. What is the Lord saying when he says they're my people? He's saying, essentially, yes, Israel has rejected me as their king, but I have not rejected them as my people. I've not given up on them. I've not abandoned them. And so two things are true of us as God's people at the same time. Number one, we're totally undeserving of God's love and goodness. And number two, God totally lavishes us with his love and goodness. Those two things are true of all of us at the same time. This is because God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for our sins in our place so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What this means is that the promise of Romans 8.32 we can cling to as, as Christians. You know what Romans 8.32 says? God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. So God is at work in our lives for good. Now let's dig into this a little bit more and look at the third phrase of our summary sentence. God works for his undeserving people to rescue them from their enemies. So we finally come now to the heart of this passage. The good God is doing for his people is to rescue them from their enemies. Now what compels God to rescue us from our enemies. Well, we don't have to guess. Look at it again in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me, where it says, He shall save, Saul shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. This is an enemy army, the Philistines. Now, why? Why is God anointing Saul to save his people? Here's why. Next sentence. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So here's what's going on. The people of Israel are in pain. They're suffering. They're, they're, they're therefore crying out to God and saying, help us, Lord. We're in misery. We're in pain. We're under the, the bondage of these enemy 
nations. And what God's heart does when he sees his people in pain and crying out to him is he can't help but overflow with compassion. When, he, when God sees us in pain and when he, he hears us crying out to him in the midst of our pain, his auto response from his heart is mercy, is grace, is to move toward us for our good. And, and particularly to save us from our enemies. Now keep that in mind as we look at the last phrase. God works for his undeserving people to rescue them from their enemies through his chosen king. Now, if you look, look at it there in verse 16 of chapter 9, Saul is called, he's not called prince. Notice it there. Or, I'm sorry. He's not called king. He's called prince. See that there? He's called prince. Now, why is he called prince? Because he's designated by God as the ruler of Israel, but he's underneath God's ultimate rule. God is still the ultimate ruler of Israel. Saul is just a prince underneath God. And Saul's main role as the leader of the people of Israel is to be a warrior king. Track with me here. His, Saul's role is to protect God's people from their enemies. But as we'll see, he fails to defeat the enemies of the Lord as he should. And so we're left waiting for a better warrior king who will truly be the protector of God's people. And about 1,000 years later, on the streets of Galilee, we see a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, he is doing battle every day of his life. Jesus was at war throughout his life. Yes, Joe, what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus came and he did not fight against uh, military enemies of his people. He didn't, the Romans at that time, he didn't gather up a band to strap on swords and to fight alongside him. But Jesus was nonetheless at war in his life. And this is because all along God knew that his people did not ultimately need rescue from human enemies. We need rescue from enemies that are much deeper and more sinister. I'm reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in my personal just quiet time with the Lord. And it's amazing how often Jesus casts out demons. It's clear from the Gospels that Jesus is the ultimate warrior king and his war is against an unseen, spiritual, evil kingdom. And I believe that we have too little awareness of the unseen spiritual forces at work in our lives. And the good work that God wants to do in our lives is to protect us from the attacks of this unseen enemy. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. This is God's word. And we need to receive it as God's word. This is truth. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not 
wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight is not human to human. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me ask you this. Do you think the dark dreams that you have at night are purely random and coincidental? Do you think that the thoughts about God that strike into your mind that are false and blasphemous and wrong are just random? Do you think that it's a coincidence that at the very moment that you resolve to seek the Lord and you're worshiping Jesus from the heart, this thought comes to mind. None of it's true. It's all a made-up fairy tale. You know those super intense, almost irresistible temptations toward vanity and materialism and sexual immorality? You think the devil isn't at work in all of that? The sense of crushing guilt and shame and thoughts of I'm not worthy. There is an unseen enemy who whispers these things into our ears. Do you think that the intense strain in your marriage isn't related to Satan's hatred for godly and flourishing marriages? Sure, we can fall too far on the side of seeing Satan and demons in everything, but I think we fall too far on the other side of failing to attribute the dark and chaotic and sinful things in our lives to, in part, the work of unseen spiritual forces that Ephesians 6 talks about. And the help we need in the moment of intense temptation and when we're in the midst of darkness and we're, when we're feeling accused by the evil one, the help we need comes from our warrior king, Jesus. He is a great, powerful, gracious king who when we cry to him in the midst of our need, he is right there to help. That's our king, Jesus. That's who he is. He has committed himself to do good to us. So the call for us is simple. Go directly to Jesus, your king. Put your faith directly in Christ today. When you feel stuck and like there's no way out, cry out to the Lord and he will be the helper and protector and king that you and I need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.